Welcome to anyone and everyone who may have tuned in. This is Coming Into Focus, the podcast about all things mental health. I am your host, Jay Wick. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist based out of Encinitas, California. And this is the very first episode of the Coming Into Focus podcast. I am extremely excited and extremely grateful to anybody who may have tuned in today. This has been a long time coming, something I've been talking about doing for a very long time, something that every time I go on a rant in the kitchen, my fiance, who actually happens to be the co-host of today's episode, she often tells me, I wish we recorded all of this right now. People need to hear this. So not to toot my own horn, but finally trying to just put some of this out on the air, share some of my thoughts on different topics related to mental health, and hopefully can help inspire some others or help maybe bring about some change or encourage some people to maybe get into some therapy themselves. Uh, this episode is going to be a little bit longer than probably most of the episodes due to it being the first one due to this intro. And on this episode, I have Carly, my fiance, co-host and facilitate because this episode is an introduction to myself. So I really get into a lot of uh, my past struggles with addiction, my recovery, and sort of how that recovery has changed along the way, and then how I ended up becoming a therapist. Since it is talking about myself, I think I might have got a little carried away and rambled on. But I hope it's entertaining, I hope it's interesting, and I sincerely hope you all enjoy. Coming into focus. Hello and welcome. Coming into focus, the podcast. That was my beautiful theme music created on the spot <laughs> by my co-host today, Carly Rowe, who is also my lovely fiance. I actually didn't know that he had pressed record when I was doing that. So I think we're gonna keep it. I, I'm excited. Wonderful. I think I'm probably gonna get a record deal out of that, but just saying. You're gonna get something out of that. <laughs> ridicule <laughs> mostly yeah thank you record for having deal me. Yeah. ridicule they sound similar <laughs> totally okay so here is the deal this is the first podcast it's not the first one i've recorded but it's going to be the first one the intro and the intro to the podcast a little bit about what the podcast is about and me telling my story and so carly is here today to sort of facilitate the telling of that story. Uh, I've shared my own story of where I was and where I am now and how I got here and all of that. I've shared it several times. I've in different sort of media forums. Yeah. Instagram. I When I first got into recovery, I made a blog. I always share on my recovery anniversary, you know, um, on Facebook and things like that. But this is a big one coming up, though. We're coming into the end of January and uh, it's going to be February soon and February 1st marks a pretty big day in yeah. your recovery. So it's it's it'll be the 10 year mark. Yeah, it's huge. And my recovery has changed shape form over the 10 years. The one constant for sure without a doubt as I have not had a sip of alcohol in 10 years. There's other aspects of my recovery that have changed and morphed into different things and whatever. And not the time or place to get into any of that right now, but I do feel it's something that I will talk about at some point and share with people. Um, I think it's great that you 
openly talk about different forms of recovery and how it's morphed into different things. So yeah, it's it, cool to say that it's not just that it doesn't fit into a one size fits all box. The one, the main thing that I say now to people is my recovery is, is about um, continuing to move through having accountability for the things that sort of took me down or brought me down in the past and then continuing to move through those things that limited me from sort of advancing my life or moving into the life that I want. And that is a ton of different things. Alcohol and substances were one aspect of that, but fears, self-doubt, self-loathing, um, anxiety, depression. I mean, I had so much other stuff going on that it really just like immobilized me. And then like they say often, the substances were the solution to the problem temporarily until they became the problem. Right. Which doesn't make sense to a lot of people to phrase it in that way, but we'll get, maybe I'll get into that. In it. Yep. So, so why don't you do a little intro to yourself? So, okay. Right. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jay Wick. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. That's my title, my career. Um, have achieved several letters after my name now, which feels kind of cool, but <laughs> I'm also a brother, a son, a fiance, a photographer, have a photography business. So, I mean, I have all these other, I, I don't really define myself by my career. It's like, I, I love what I do immensely. It's the most awesome job ever. Um, but I have all these other projects and other things and stuff that I enjoy more than just making work my life. And so. that's amazing. I love how you worded that, that you're a brother, a son, a fiance, and many other things besides that. I think that's important. I'm a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to be marrying um, a record. Uh, I'm going to have my own record soon. You right. Know? A recording a rec- artist. Right. Star. Yes. You are a star. You have star quality. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I guess to, to jump in part of this podcast and part of why I wanted to start the podcast was on, on a pretty much on a daily basis. I sit with people and when people come to therapy, usually they are struggling in one way or another. They're not, uh, they're not coming to therapy because everything in their life is wonderful and they're just super optimistic about the future and everything's great. And so I see a lot of hopelessness, a lot of despair, a lot of people who have no faith really that things will change or get better. And so the process of therapy is weeks and months and years or whatever on end. And we're trying to work through things and kind of go at meet people where they're at and go at their pace. But I also wanted to try to create a body of work that people may find or I could turn people to where there'll be stories of people who have been through adversity and then through resiliency and other things and whatever work that they did, they have come out the other side and then they share their success story. And I think that's amazing to share what's come of those success stories and not just talk about the hard times too. Like it'll give so much inspiration um, and show so much resiliency. And a lot of people... I remember when I first got into recovery and people would tell me I was right where you were feeling the exact same thing. And I was like, bullshit. Right. Uh, So it's hard to believe, but people do relate to these stories and they like all these things. Right. So it's, at least it's just something to give some semblance of hope, even when you can't picture that things can be any different. I'm excited. I've, you know, listened to a few prior, of course, that you've recorded and 
heard the stories of the people that you have interviewed already and are going to interview. And I'm excited, even though I live with you and I'm doing these with you as well. Um, I, I'm a fan of the whole idea, so I'm excited. Yeah, and we've already, just about an hour ago, we recorded the second part of one that we've already recorded with you. We did. Um, so, okay, part of the podcast is this you know, just try to give some hope to people and tell some cool stories. I also have interviewed some people already that um, mindfulness experts and coaches and I interviewed a pharma pharmacologists who we talked about psychedelics and other things. So just also some interesting stuff, maybe in the arena of mental health, maybe not. The main thing is kind of just trying to give some inspiration around helping people maybe get out there make some changes if they need to believe that they can and then move into the life that they want to live. And part of that begins with me telling my story um, because me becoming a therapist was a very roundabout way. And so I think, you know, I, I believe I'm a good therapist. I've gotten a lot of positive reviews or results back from people. uh, But I also get often, you don't seem like a therapist. Right. And I think that that's um, actually been, in a way, a really cool compliment to gear you towards different walks of life. A lot of younger people, like older people, just everyone in between. It's not like you're some stuffy person who hasn't gone through things yourself. And not to say that other therapists are like that, but right, there might be some kind of stigmas around that it's nerve wracking to go and see a therapist in general. So to have someone relatable and who is also open to sharing his story, um, I think is inspiring and really different. Yeah. I mean, I take it as a compliment when somebody says that and not to knock on other therapists. Of course, I I know a lot of other, um, but I do know of a lot of people that have had weird experiences where they're like, it's just very cold and weird. And so I pretty much try to show up as me the me that I have been and was prior to being a therapist, but now with the knowledge of all of these theories and of ways to create change and help facilitate change and all of that. So, but I mean, I'm sort of me tend to make jokes, tend to cuss, tend to just be pretty real. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from where I came from or, you know, my background that led me to becoming a therapist. So prior to any of this, prior to ever even, thinking or knowing that I would be working in some semblance of mental health. I think the earliest thing that I knew that I wanted to do was make movies. Yeah. I remember you saying, um, that that was the first career you wanted to go into. You wanted to go to film school. That was your interest. I remember you also saying in high school, um, how you and your friends, I've seen, I've seen one or two, you actually made like really funny comical little movies. Yeah. And so you actually started doing that before even being old enough to like start going to college or anything. Well, I mean, but. even before that, uh, so I was in plays growing up as a kid and my, one of my best friends growing up, his mom was a playwright. And so she wrote a lot of the different plays, these kind of off Broadway kind of weird plays. And we, she, we would always get parts and I was actually the lead of one of the plays and I was in an improv group that we performed live, kind of like Whose Line Is It Anyway style, where the That's audience cool. would give us things and we would act them out on the spot, just make it up, which is what improv is. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's a really cool memory, though. So that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, we did it for the entire um, 
well, not the entire. It wasn't like a, a year round thing or something. What the hell do they call it when you have a <laughs> assembly? It wasn't an assembly at right. school, but when I was <laughs> in junior high, we we put on a after school thing where I mean, as far as I can remember, the auditorium was full. <laughs> And we were on stage doing improv and taking that's suggestions cool. live from the audience. So ever since you started that, that's when you knew that like you, you wanted to make a career of it. Yeah. I wanted to be an actor. I liked it, but then I also, so I think my friend, my best friend, Dan growing up, he had a camera video camera or something. And then at some point my parents got one too. And I don't think either of our parents ever, used their cameras it was just us taking it all the time making weird movies filming ourselves jumping on the trampoline i mean we would just do weird stuff so i mean this is maybe when we were before even junior high we would like make movies and we would always murder my sister she would she would be <laughs> i've heard those stories we would just go to the <laughs> local little her. party store and buy like fake blood and costumes and all these things and we would just torture julie and but i mean i felt like it was fun. It was a creative outlet. I used to love to write too. And we would write stories and things. And I mean, stay up like late at night, just like writing stories. So I've always kind of been like a storyteller too. And then when I got into high school, they offered video film and it was like an intro to film class. We would learn about stuff. I had to watch ET in a class. <laughs> and if, if you know me, you know, Jay, he is terrified of et it is his arch nemesis yeah um ever since he was little like terrified like, of et terrible. et came in my room when i was a kid <laughs> still convinced to this day it was the most vivid <laughs> dream or not dream i've ever had no, we don't know he, come to find out though yeah would find out my mom tortured me with et and would like hold up et <laughs> shirts they would do like dress magazines i remember them saying they'd hold up little magazines when he was on like or like a baby times or something yeah yeah <laughs> and torture you so that was the, they would dress they me in you. E. you tortured julie <laughs> yeah just constant uh comedy slash torture <laughs> right but i had to watch et in a, the film class and um i'm in high school like surrounded by other high school students so i have to oh like gosh. try to act tough but i, I was like squirming and my friends knew that I hate E.T., so they were laughing, too. But oh anyway, gosh. so you learn some film stuff, some basic things, and then they give you a camera and you can go around school, make videos, and then you learn how to edit. And I fell in love with it to at one point. I mean, I took it every semester or however high school works that I could. And then at some point in like 11th grade or something, I was editing films for like the basketball team, putting like little highlight reels together. And I would go to high school at like six o'clock in the morning. And they would open up the um, video film room for me. I didn't me. know that or remember that. Yeah. That's so cute. like at 16, when like even now, I'm like, I'm not getting up before. Totally. But like you were that passionate about it that you had that drive in high school to get up that early. I didn't even want to get up at the normal time. So that's right. pretty cool. That shows so a lot go, of drive. I was excited. I think they paid me like two or 300 bucks one time. Oh, they paid you? Oh, yeah. And so that was like my first... I wow. made money off of a thing that I could do. So did that spark you wanting to do it even more? It, it like maybe go to film school college wise or, or oh, when yeah. did you present that to be an idea? That was already no, like I'm going to film school. I had a couple of friends that were already saying that they were going to do it too. And then when it came down to it, um, when I graduated, basically my parents said, like the only film school that they knew of and that we that I 
And the only re- the only film school that I knew of, based on what they were telling me, was USC, which is super expensive, hard to get into. They basically kind of said in a roundabout way, you're not going to make any money in this career. It's all about who you know. And like strangely, we had had a guy come present in our class that was somebody's like brother or something that worked semi-successful in the film industry. And even he was kind of crushing and like, you're. it's rare that you're going to make any money in this. Like, right. So you probably of- don't go after it unless you're going to be really passionate about it. So I had all these people kind of, you know, talking me out of it. And especially my parents just said, you're not going to make any money in this and we're not going to pay to go to pay for you to go to college to go into a career that is not going to do anything for you. Right. So after that kind of being shut down in a way, what did you do after you ended up choosing something that you thought, if I'm remembering right, you you chose business right after that? Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I, I not knocking my parents, like I can understand no, of that course. if they're, if they've saved for college for me and they're going to invest in me, there was also sort of a space where we, I grew up in a very normal home, great parents, great family, no craziness or abuse or anything like that. But there was like financial stress and things and we were never like struggling immensely, but there'd be periods of time where we would be a little worse for wears than we were or whatever. And so, but all of this is to say that sort of, I think my mom's focus was, stability like you got to get a job that's going to be stable and make money because look like we have these periods of instability and right they're coming from their circumstances and it's understandable as a parent you're trying to steer your child in the right direction too so of course you're just right they're doing the best they know how to steer you so then obviously like college is the next thing on the list after you know it's it's sort of just this like socially constructed like you got to go to college and there's nobody ever telling you anything elsewise like if, hey if you worked really hard at something that you were passionate about or that you really like to do somebody's going to pay you to do it right you could be an artist you could be whatever there there wasn't a lot of encouragement in that direction it was like go get a practical stable job right so did you take a break after high school or because of the socially constructed ideas of that's just what you do you go straight to college did you go straight to yeah, business school went, no I, well, did you take any time off no so i just went straight to community college oh right and i kind of in my mind at that point i'm not going to transfer to a four-year don't really want to go to school don't really know what i'm doing like my dreams are crushed right the only thing i knew that i liked that i was passionate about i can't do did you do it in your free time at all after that or did you just kind of put that away no, and just put it to bed yeah. So I went to Palomar Community College in um, like San Marcos-ish area, whatever. I went. That was the first place I went straight there. A bunch of my friends moved to Lake Tahoe right after high school. And that was like the plan for all of us that we were going to do. And I couldn't go. So I went to school. I, I was always able to do school well and, and with a minimal effort. Like I didn't, which was like a it like kind of hindered me at the same time too because I wouldn't have to put in a lot of work to get B's and A's I could show up basically unstudied sometimes and do really well on tests but then it also created this work ethic in me where like I didn't really have to like try and put my full effort into a lot of things right um so I went to Palomar taking basic general ed classes and then I I moved to Tahoe the following year so I lived in South Lake Tahoe for a year or like nine months um, and there was really, I had started kind of partying 
a little recklessly and a little too much prior to all of that. And a lot of it came out of social anxiety and other things and just trying to feel more comfortable. But I was always kind of going beyond most people. Um, just taking it a little too far, even early on. And just not wanting to stop. And how did Lake Tahoe, <laughs> I, I mean, obviously that escalated things living in a house with all of your friends and stuff, right? Yeah. So all of it was just kind of, um, boys will be boy. I mean, you, that's it, totally it's just that what age. you do and yeah. it's college and you're partying, but given, so I went to community college in Lake Tahoe too. The South Lake Tahoe had a little community college. We worked at Heavenly, the ski resort. Um, I was like a lift operator, the guy that tells you like, I need to come forward and then you hold the chairlift so you can get on. It was actually really fun living up there. We had a four bedroom, two story, awesome house that was like bigger than anything I'd ever lived in. I'm there with all my buddies. We're 19 years old. We had stole a bunch of hay bales from the side of the road and we stacked them up in our backyard because we had all this land in the backyard and we made run-ins for jumps and we had rails and picnic tables that we would and we would just party all the time. College kids dream, especially for a bunch of boys. Yeah. And I mean, it was awesome right so but i was going to school at the time too but given what i've already said about how i didn't really have to try that hard i didn't put that much effort into school and then i I remember i was taking an economics class a biology class something else and i would party all the time blow off studying do everything show up take the tests get better grades than all of your friends friends i remember you saying that yeah but it didn't benefit me at all because slowly I started turning more attention to less attention to snowboarding, less attention to school, less attention to anything and just partying more and more and more. And then it all basically culminated on New Year's Eve 2000. We had like 40 of our friends from down here in Encinitas, San Diego, come to our place for the millennium, (laughs) New Year's, Y2K. And it was insane. I've heard about this since we've been together. Like the best party ever, the best time ever. All of our friends were just like sleeping on the floor everywhere, whatever. But I was calling in sick to work, which I wasn't sick, just so that I could stay and party um, pretty much for like a week on end. Or I would go and they there sometimes they'd be overstaffed. And so they would say, does anybody want the day off? And I every time I'd be like, of course, I'm going home. Right. That's hard to pass up especially when you're partying and (laughs) up there and so you have no constraints on you kind of there's no parents if everyone's doing the same thing there's not a whole lot of accountability and I just wasn't as aware maybe that like all my friends weren't necessarily partying the same way I was so I basically bailed Tahoe I scared myself towards the end of that after New Year's and stuff because I had been partying so hard I was really wearing myself down I thought I had given myself an ulcer I just, I packed up all my shit and I bailed and I left my room like a disaster. I mean, it was kind of, I like literally fled back to my parents' house, which would be the first of many times going back to my parents' house. And so what happened with school after that? Did you move back to? So I think I finished the the quarter or whatever there. And then I went back to Miracosta, which is here in Encinitas, you know, um, I think I did a summer school class or something. I just did some more community college. And then at some point I transferred to San Diego state. And so there I was still finishing some G some general ed stuff, but I was supposed to go into the business department afterwards. And you have to have a certain GPA and all of that to get into that. 
but everything I was doing was geared towards going to business. So I was taking business prereqs and all of these things. And you chose that just for backup because it seemed, I remember you saying it seemed like businessmen make money. It's a stable job. It's, you know, so you could do many things with it. Like it was just something that you kind of picked because you felt. Yeah. Like, no idea what else to do. Right. I didn't. But it didn't there really was not ha- a lot of guidance of like where to go, what to do, how to do it. It was just like you're supposed to have a major when you go to school and business seems like something that would like open doors to getting jobs. So I guess I'll do that. And I would same thing. I would take the accounting classes and all these classes. But I eventually I started I was living in PB now at the time, Pacific Beach in San Diego for anybody listening that's just kind of known as like a debauchery, like party town. It's like Vegas on the beach. That's what I always used to call yeah. it. <laughs> and it's like douchebag set. Like everyone's just partying and fighting and doing dumb shit. And I was out partying all the time and then being too hungover to go to class. I didn't realize a lot of time until later that I had a lot of social anxiety too. So it was hard in general for me to be in class. Like I'd be nervous and sweaty and like scared all the time. Like what if they call on me? What if I have to do a project with people? Ah. So I just wouldn't go. Or I'd be so hungover, I'd sh- I'd go to school and then I'd sleep in the library. I'd just push two chairs together and just sleep. And then I would end up going and show up for the test. Pull C's or B's. Seemed to be working temporarily until I couldn't get into the business department because my GPA wasn't high enough. And so I ended up having to either change majors or I was going to leave and I was going to transfer to Cal State San Marcos take a semester off and then I probably would have been able to get the have the GPA to get into um, Cal State San Marcos's business program and so at that point you're you're not working right you're still you're living in PB and just going to school no I was working at Los Olas at the time okay so you did begin there yeah which we know led to a lot of both of our partying and stuff right so I was living in PB drive up Got work it. at Los Olas so then I took the semester off I think at that point too Maybe this, I can't remember exactly, but pretty sure right around here was a, a, like the second time that I moved back to my parents' house. And at that point, I was going to take, I was going to go back to school and apply to go back to school. And what a semester off turned into basically 10 years off and a steady progression into worse and worse substance use. I was in a relationship at the time, you know, I'd probably three or four years into it. It was a five-year relationship, but I had been partying so much and doing dumb shit over and over and letting her down, all this other stuff that eventually like that ended too. And then that was devastating to me and just funneled more into, well, I'm just going to continue partying and abusing myself. And keep taking more time off. And then it just, it gets away from you really quick. Yeah. Like, and, and people had told me, don't take a semester off. It will turn into... A lot longer. But the thing is, like, I didn't have the motivation to go back. Because it wasn't I, something you were passionate about. Right. I didn't want to go. Didn't want to put in the work. Didn't feel motivated to do it. I was working and working my way up kind of at Los Olas and making money. And I liked the environment. I, my friends were there. I was working with all my friends. Why don't I just start making money now? Like, and I, and this was the mentality kind of for me too. My parents are telling me, go to school, get a degree, so you can work and make more money. And then I kind of had this recollection in the story in my head too of my parents kind of coming home every day being like, I hate my job. My job's so stressful, whatever. And then, you know, there'd be periods of time where we're, we're not like sitting pretty financially. 
So to me, it was kind of this like, well, you went, mom, you went to school, you're a teacher, you have a stable job and all that, but like, you don't seem super stoked on it. And dad's not always that happy at his jobs. Um, so why don't I just, even if I make a little less money, like, why don't I just stay at this job right now? The reality was it was easy. It was known. I could party all the time. I didn't, I had a crazy schedule. I'd walk out with two or $300 in my pocket. Yeah. Yeah. So it just it became a thing where like the years blended together. Um, but all the while through this, my substance use was picking up and what has started as drinking. And then like in high school, you know, I did ecstasy a couple times and things, but never really got into any drugs. And then into 21, I tried some drugs in Vegas. And then at that point never was without these certain substances and that progressed, but the drinking was always the main crutch right but a lot of them kind of go hand in hand especially in the party atmosphere that we were in I mean your era of Las Vegas was different than mine but both equally have crazy party stories you know yeah and I mean it's a it's an environment where everybody's doing the same thing so it's like one big dysfunctional family and nobody's really holding each other accountable and so you don't question your behavior it's just what everyone's doing and so then little generations of waves of people would come through, but the constant would always be, I'm getting older and they stay in the same age kind of thing. Right. And I remember kind of waking up on people's couches or, you know, like, and I'm getting older and older as this is going on, but I I don't know. I just kept drinking to push it away and I didn't know what I was going to do. At one point I went to art school and I don't remember where this is in the thing, but I did a semester at art school was going to go for web design, thought maybe that was something I could get behind. My parents supported me, were helping me. Um, And then I started, because I was drinking so much and partying so much, I wasn't showing up to school enough and all that. And I was, my grades were starting to get behind. And so then I sort of concocted this big thing. It's not for me and I can't do it. And uh, I'm crying to my mom and telling her, I don't know what I'm doing. And there's so many artists here and I'm not an artist. Uh, But really, I was uncomfortable. I had dug myself into a hole that I didn't think I could get out of. And so I just bailed and ran away from it, which I had done for a lot of different things in my life. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was this the time in school where your drinking had become such a serious problem that you were trying to stay sober enough to go to class and you could not, and you were. No. So that, that is kind of where I'm going now to with this is that I, so my, my drinking had progressed to probably it was seven days a week for sure. And not just having a couple cocktails seven days a week. It was, I'm going to drink. If I'm not at work, I'm going to go to work. And I'm going to sit at the bar and I'm going to drink all night margarita. I mean, like my tolerance at this point was crazy high. The the drinks that I would be drinking, if you saw it, you know, people would be like, what in the hell? That's what. And I'd have like a shot on the side, like a triple shot on the side, you know. And that was kind of normal in that area. I mean, right. Yeah. But and then, you know, driving a lot and just not bad. I had got a DUI at some point. Um, thought that would deter me. I think I stopped drinking for maybe a week or two. And then just went right back to it like nothing ever happened. But so I was getting ready to apply to go back to school, putting some stuff together. I had started taking one Spanish class at uh, Miracosta and Oceanside, which is right up the street from where we live now. And oh, no, prior to that, I was in Spanish 
and one other class, I think, at Miracosta San Alejo. And I would go drunk every time. The class was two or three days a week. Go drunk, crushing it. I was like fluent in Spanish. <laughs> also like ta- talking to like all the cooks and stuff in the back at work. And uh, I mean, I had a vocabulary. I knew a lot of words. Couldn't conjugate and put everything together well, but then you get a little liquor in me. And I mean, the stuff was flowing. And so I, I was, I got an A. I was killing it. Went into the next Spanish. Um, and at that point, I was really near the downfall of the whole thing. I had been drinking pretty much at that point all day, every day. That at some point, and I don't know where it came about, I started drinking the moment I woke up because I would have crippling anxiety. And I'm, I mean, drinking like a couple shots of hard liquor just to try to soothe the, because every day that I'd wake up, I'd be like, what are you doing with your life? That was your only coping, coping mechanism at that time that you knew how to do. Right. And I was creeping up on 30, living at my parents' house, taking one class in college that I didn't know what I was going to do with any of it anyways. So I just kept going to work, drinking, drinking on my days off, drinking when I would wake up. Some days I'd just drink and then I'd go back to sleep for a while until I have to work at four. But it, I mean, I don't, I don't know where it turned into this thing where I was drinking all day, like in the mornings and everything, you know? Um, so I got away from you quick. Yeah. It just escalated. Like this thing does, it's a progressive thing. You know what I mean? So, but I just don't know. I lost track of time of like where it was. Um, so I went to Miracosta at this point I was trying to stop drinking during the days so that I could go sit in this class, but I would have withdrawals so bad from a couple hours of not having alcohol in me that I'd be like sweating and kind of like convulsing. So I'd be sitting in this class trying to take the class and I'm like telling my friend that was in the class with me, yeah, I think I have the flu, like I'm really bad right now. And I remember specifically at one point going home from that class going, this is bad, you need to stop drinking. Was so uncomfortable all night trying to not drink that I ended up getting a bottle of NyQuil and drinking like a half or three quarters, not realizing how bad that is with all the acetaminophen and all that. So I got up the next day. I was pretty much could had this conviction. I got, I have to stop drinking. I have a severe problem. I think right around this point too, I had had an issue at night sweeping up, cleaning the restaurant. And I started thinking about my life and I started crying while I was sweeping up the restaurant. And then, um, one of the coworkers who was younger than me, a female younger, had worked her way up to management where I was staying stuck at server bartender or something. And she came up and she was like, what's, are you okay? What's going on? And I, she was the first person that I really said, I was like, I'm an alcoholic. I have a gnarly problem and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. And she didn't know what to do with that information. She was just like, Oh, it's probably not that bad, you know? But I remember also kind of looking at her as this cute young girl and I'm getting older and not doing anything with my life. And I remember thinking, at this point too, strangely kind of like I want a partner like that or something in my life and I'm never going to get anybody. Nobody's going to want me. I'm an alcoholic. That's not doing anything with his life. That's living at his parents at 29 years old. What the fuck is wrong with me? But I didn't know how to stop. I, and this is a thing too. People that have a substance use problem and have had one for a long time know that they have a problem. There's, there is, a denial up to a point and at a point it's very miserable and very scary and very sad and you're just putting on a facade that everything's okay 
because you don't want people, you also don't want people to like catch on and make you do something. You just kind of think maybe at some point I'll be able to get out of this on my own. So I'll just keep going through the motions. And then you also continue to get pulled to the substance because it's the only thing that sort of keeps at that point. It was the only thing that was like keeping me alive. Um, so I, I'm sitting on my parents' couch that day after that class where I drank the bottle of NyQuil and I'm thinking in my head, don't drink at all today. Please, like, whatever you do, don't go drink. And I was having these convulsions in my chest and then the idea popped into my head. Well, maybe if you just have a little bit of the wine in the fridge that that will curb the withdrawal you're having. And as soon as I opened that door, the brilliant idea came in to go into work on my day off because I needed to return a DVD or something to somebody and I'm there having shots and then I start partying with the customers and then ended up on like a two or three day bender just like the exact opposite of what I was trying to do and obviously your parents had no idea at this point right like you still living to the best of your knowledge you didn't think that they had any clue they knew that I was not living a good healthy life right I mean I, I didn't look healthy I was sickly I mean you know and I just sleep all day and be irritable and there were points where when I was in that Spanish class that I was drinking all the time going to I would come home from work have Spanish a couple hours later and I'd eat I'd drink like three or four margaritas at work I'd come home drive home eat dinner with my parents my mom said at that point too she kind of always knew that I was buzzed up at that point but we we weren't arguing there wasn't like a lot of problems so she just kind of let the stuff slide a little bit and then I'd go off to class and then I'd go then every time I would leave class and go back to work to finish the night out and drink and see who wanted to go out Mm. and party with me because somebody always did there oh yeah (laughs) it's like a little cheers bar you know yep so that uh, after that full bender was like the end the downfall and it's a story that I've told several times like I really wanted to kind of lead in with all this other stuff other than just this debauchery like this is how bad it was but the substance use problem was horrific after this bender where i had been up for a couple days and drinking non-stop i had a shift at work and i went to work picked up my car i've gone home this is the story that i've told several times but i was hallucinating um, i was sort of delusional and so i was like thinking that the DVR box was recording me and I could hear my dad talking to me through it. And then I knew that that was not that that was like a hallucination, but at the same time felt very real, you know, then I went to work, worked my whole shift, drank through the whole shift just to stay your whole shift. Yeah. In being like that. That's yeah. Like when I would put my hand down on the counter or something, like my arms would be shaking so much that I'd take a big shot of vodka and our mutual friend, Jason at one point, I mean, I took a uh, rocks glass, like a margarita glass full of vodka and drank it in front of him. And he just looked at me with this utter shock. What the hell was that? But it was like water to me at that point. It was just like keeping me functioning. Right. So I did all my side work, went in the back, talked to Joellen, our manager, friend, and said, uh, I'm an alcoholic. I'm dying. I'm going to the emergency room right now. What do you think I should do? Like, help me out. I actually had talked to a friend who had gone to rehab prior to that. I called him on the phone and said, like, what do you recommend I do? And so that, and then I called my dad and said, uh, if you're at home, stay there. I'm coming home. I have something to tell you. Walked in the door. My dad met me kind of in the entryway. And I said, if it's not abundantly clear to you that I'm an alcoholic, um, I am. I have a problem. I'm dying currently. I'm pretty sure I'm dying. And I need to go to the emergency room. 
and my dad was kind of like, no, I don't think you are or do. But right, because you don't want to, ad- I mean, that was hard enough for you to admit. And then going from a parent's standpoint, like you don't want to admit your son is that far gone, you know? There was just no way for them to know how bad it was. Right. And there's no, they still don't know. And yeah. I don't share a lot of the gruesome parts of it with people. But there were things going on behind the scenes that, you know, if people knew about, right. it would be very shocking. Um, but my dad said, we were going to sit you down and talk to you today or tomorrow or whatever, actually, because we knew something's been going on. And do you need help and whatever? So I, anyway, I drove myself. I left, drove myself to the emergency room on the way to the emergency room, started calling up all my friends and people. Hey, guess what I'm doing? I'm going. But I think even at that point, I didn't think I was going to go to rehab. I just thought I need help right now. You know, an emergency room was the only place to start. Right. Did you know that you were going to enter a detox or anything about that with alcoholism or anything? No. At first, yeah. I didn't know any part of that process. Right. I just knew I'm dying now. Legit so fear of death. Drove yourself and then did your parents meet they, you there? My mom was at work and so my da- I said, wait for mom, bring mom later, I'm going. I don't even think my dad, he think he was just in shock so he didn't really know right. what the hell was happening. And then I went to the ER when I was in there, I kept telling them i'm having a heart attack you know uh, i recorded another thing a while ago where i talked about a lot of this so i'm not going to get into much of this but they took me back put me back in room were pumping ivs into me i mean just giving me like bag after bag so all of that transpired into like a 12 or 14 hour stay there which they decided to like two years later send me a fifteen thousand dollar bill for i don't know why it took so long to get to me uh, then i went into a detox and then into a 28-day program. And so part of recording this right now, too, is that this is the timeline around when all of that went down. So late January, today's January 19th, maybe the 22nd, 23rd, 24th. But all of this, I mean, in 2010, January 2010, around this time, I mean, this could have been the time when I was sitting in that Spanish class wigging out because those were all the days that were leading up to all of that. How does that make you feel now? Like each time of year, do you still feel some kind of subconscious anxiety around it, do you think? Or maybe 10 years later, you don't feel any of that? Did you ever? For probably at least five, six years or something, every, t- every year, this time of year, I would get all the physiological uh, symptoms of crazy anxiety. And I could be completely calm mentally. I think it was like a weird trauma or something trapped in there or some weird thing because I mean, it was, it was a legit, I was sedated through a lot of it. But when I really look at it, like I thought it was dying. I thought it was the end. It was horrible. Right. And so, but it was a weird thing that I noticed every year around the same time I'd start to get this real anxious and I don't, it doesn't happen anymore. So yeah, this is sort of the timeline of all of this is kind of, you know, very symbolic because this is the, the this was the beginning of the downfall and then here now 10 years later starting to kind of feel not like the beginning of the the rise because it's been rising for a long time but right. things are starting to go really well the career and you and I are engaged and we're getting married and like all of these things that I kind of didn't know 
I would ever have, let alone even be alive yeah. at this point. So I did the treatment, um, residential treatment, 28 days at the McDonald Center, which was in La Jolla at the time, um, was the first thing that I ever completed. And I felt pretty excited. They wanted me to go to outpatient and I couldn't afford it. My insurance wouldn't cover any of it. So I just dove really heavily into AA. And that was what I was geared to believe was what my life was going to be like from here on out was just, you have to go to meetings for the rest of your life. And, um, if you don't, then you're pretty doomed. Like right. your life, you're, you're inevitably going to fail. And I would get met with this a lot. I mean, in AA, they have these bumper sticker slogans. They call them where meeting makers make it and all of these things. If you don't go to meetings, people's mind are blown. What do you mean you don't go? Right. Like, how could you not? You must be doing something wrong or you must not be a real alcoholic. Like right. they say that stuff. But in the first year, I dove like really heavily into it. And part of it was, I don't like this thing. I don't really want to be here, but I'm going to try to release all those judgments because maybe this thing is going to save my life and maybe I need it. And I did find a lot of value in it and made friends and I learned a lot. I got a sponsor, did all my steps. Um, but what I also learned was like on a cognitive behavioral level, I learned how to work through a lot of social anxieties and phobias and weird things. And, and I would purposely go choose meetings where I knew nobody and I'd drive across town just to be even more uncomfortable and sit through the discomfort. So all this time, I didn't really know I was doing it, but I was working on distress tolerance and emotional regulation and all these different things. And AA gave a really envi good environment to do that in. You know, and I went into AA as an atheist. Very, I would argue you about God. Came out of it feeling more agnostic. Now, 10 years later, I would consider myself a very spiritual person, not necessarily in god sense or things like that but and people don't know that about me like my right. friends and stuff you know i, I have very wooey wooey kind of spiritual beliefs and you and i talk about that a lot but you know right how that evolves over the years and stuff and um how it changes the older you get and the more you find your own little pathway but when do you feel like that changed the sort of yeah god going into kind of saying that you're agnostic um, I think somewhere in it, the third step, you have to turn your life over to the care and will of God or All however right. it goes. And I didn't have a God. And it also just didn't make sense to me that this thing that they always say, your higher power could be the doorknob. Your higher power could be whatever. You just have to have a higher power. Right. I never really understood the whole concept completely of that. It just made sense to me like you're, you need to have a God because God has a plan for your life. And you have to believe that all of this is part of the plan for your life and God will take care of you. And it was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around that. But at that point, I was willing to go. I don't necessarily know if I believe in God, but I'm willing to believe that there could be because I don't have all the answers. Right. I think that's huge. And and for somebody that was so know-it-all stubborn, I'm smarter than you. You can't tell me shit. Like right. that was a big step for me to kind of step into. And that's one of the big hangups with a lot of people too. They use that as an excuse to stay away from it. Or they've had really bad experiences with religion and things. So That's what I was going to say. What Do you mean stay away from AA? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is, I was actually going to mention, I think is kind of cool to hear in a way that like just because you don't believe in God or whatever. I, I mean, it's great that you were open to it after a while, you know, just 
to say you don't know it all and you're here for help. But like, you know, you can have different standpoints and still get value out of certain things, whether you follow AA steps or you. And like, yeah, that I think people use it as an excuse to not do the work. Right. It's a, it's a, so there's a discomfort around going to this place and this thing. And what does it mean if I'm a part of this group now? I had all those judgments. When I got a DUI before I went to treatment and all of this, I had to go to meetings and I judged the people in the meetings and thought I'm better than them. I don't belong here. All of this. So people have all of these ideas or what does it mean to my friends and family? If now I'm an AA person and you just, I heard even in my own family, people talking shit about AA mocking people that were, so I already was uncomfortable. Right. And that's what a lot of other people. So the discomfort, I talk about this a lot, right? The discomfort immediately you get into this fight or flightish kind of place and then your brain concocts a story of why it doesn't work for me, which really at the end of the day is I'm uncomfortable and you just need some time to work through the discomfort and to come to your own conceptualization of what this thing is and be willing to do something to try to change your life. Do anything to try and change it. Yeah. Even if this is not your thing, you're trying and that might be the first thing that some people know to go to. So that's a lot of treatment then when I was going was very 12 step based and it was just, you do your first three steps in treatment and then you leave and you have to have a sponsor before you leave and you go continue AA. Right. The thing is AA is not therapy. It's not, necessarily helping you with your anxiety or your depression or your severe mental illness or all these other things trauma right and it's a group of people that are also traumatized themselves so some have moved very far along and done really good work and can be great sponsors and some sort of recreate family of origin trauma and stuff with you and are like Mm. really strict and hard on you and they they think that they're being helpful and sometimes they are you know what i mean like sponsors and fellow people that's shut the fuck up and do what i say i mean that's like a thing that like you will call me every day and if you don't i'm dropping you like there's no room for mistakes in this and i get it to a point too because there kind of isn't a lot of room for mistakes but and they're trying to help and whatever so there's two sides but it's a to some people it's like this is a life and death thing Oh, absolutely. So do what I say and I'm going to try to help you save your life. Where to me, somebody that's like so worried and scared, everyone's mad at me all the time and that I'm going to do it wrong. That just drives my fucking anxiety through the roof anyways. And that's the thing I was drinking for in the first place. Right. So there's a lot of, you know, I'm not trying to bag AA or talk shit because for that. So I committed to a year. I told myself you were going to try this thing wholeheartedly for a year. I went to at least four or five meetings a week. I was still going to aftercare. I was meeting with my sponsor and his sponsor and going and reading the big book out loud and Starbucks and like feeling what it felt like to, I'm like, these people think I'm a freak. And then I would just eventually ease into it, you know? Um, But after I, I took my year token and then I pretty much stepped away from AA. And that was a scary thing for me because everything that I had been sort of conditioned to believe was sooner or later from you leaving, you're going to be in a ditch somewhere again and your life's going to fall apart and go to shit. Yeah. But at this time I had also, so right before I went to the emergency room and went on that bender, I was supposed to go like the next day and turn in my application to Cal State San Marcos. Mm. And my friend worked in the admissions department there and she was going to like help me get it in right under the wire 
and I screwed all that up because I went on this bender and had to go to the hospital. So my mom actually like went and dropped it off for me. Oh. So in treatment, backtracking to, you know, uh, February, somewhere in February, I found out I got accepted to go to school and I needed to leave treatment for one day to go fill out my FAFs and they wouldn't, they didn't want to let me go because they were like, you're going to relapse if you leave. Uh. It's like, I'll be with my parents. Like, yeah, well, a lot of people will be with their parent, you know? Um, So I left, I got a pass, filled that out. School wasn't going to start for another six months or something. I was going to go into the, I think the fall semester and I got out in um, spring or something. So I ended up getting into school and for that, for for that six months after treatment, I, I ended up moving in an apartment downtown San Diego by myself again, where everybody told me that you're going to relapse little Italy, downtown San Diego. It's not a good place for you. It's going to be all bad. Living in a studio by yourself is going to be all bad. Everyone kept telling me all these things and like this very pessimistic. I was like, I know what I need to do. I have to, I'm going to be accountable and I have to do it. I had a friend in the two friends in the building. So they kept me kind of sane and I would go to my meetings and do all my stuff, but I could not get myself to walk into a place and apply for a job. I was just terrified to sit, to, to shake a person's hand or sit down for an interview. Would it come up? What's this gap in your employment? What have you been doing? Like, right. I'm going to have to tell somebody that, you know? So I would just go fake it and go to the coffee shop and pretend to apply for places online all day. And in my head, I would think like, I'm applying for jobs. And I never got a call for a single freaking job doing that. And then I walked into a Trader Joe's one day, shook a hand, talked to some people, ended up sitting down for an interview. And in the interview, I told the the guy asked me, you know what you were employed at this place for like 10 years i see a six seven month gap in here what's that all about and i was like hey i'm i'm basically starting my life over i went to treatment i had a substance use problem here i am now i'm I'm getting ready to go back to school i'm getting ready i'm trying to rebuild my life and i'm only like six months sober at this point wow how did that feel to be honest with someone as far as like being in an interview that had to have been one of the first was that one of the first strangers that you told about? Besides I think AA, so. You know, AA meetings. I would stuff? be kind of open about it. Like if we were out somewhere and the, my friends would laugh because like the waitress would come around right. and they'd all order beers and then she'd be like, you want something to drink? And I'd be like, I don't drink. <laughs> like you had like, to openly. But they'd be like, dude, you, you could say I want a water. Like right. you don't have to. Like I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> but I think for me, it helped me feel like if i put it out there there's less stigma or something if i put it out there Mm -hmm. and two maybe it was accountability or something i think what was good is i had it was received in a really positive way and it was like good for you man and i think that aside from friends and stuff maybe that was one of the first people that was like it's awesome what you're trying to do that's amazing thanks for giving me a chance you know so I worked at Trader Joe's for a couple years while I was back at Cal State San Marcos. And again, all this time, I had no idea that I was going to move into becoming a therapist. Or, But I had decided I'm not going back to school for business. And so I went and I switched my major to human development with an emphasis in counseling. And I thought maybe I'll become a drug and alcohol counselor. Or I'll do something in the way of counseling. How did you, I mean, when did you decide? Did you have a good counsel yourself or like did you just how did that come about because that's a big jump from business to then going into some form of mental health field right 
Yeah. I mean, in treatment. So I got, I had got accepted. And then that's when I was like formulating this plan kind of, of if I have to go back to school and I was so miserable in business, what am I going to do? And will my parents be mad at me if I switch? And, and so at this point I already knew too, I'm going to be paying for school myself. Um, but I didn't want to have to backtrack if I switched majors and I had put so much work towards business, it'd feel like a step backwards if I switched majors, but sitting one, yes, I had an amazing counselor. The guy was just awesome. I love, he was like real. He cussed, he <laughs> had crazy funky style. He was just a cool guy. And he Sounds was good. Familiar. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he like got, and he could like read people really well. And I loved that. And I kind of just started thinking like, I really liked the psychology of the whole process and then watching the groups where people would get real and like emotions would come out. And then you'd watch the people transform from day one where they look like a zombie right. until, and to a person that's got a personality and they're, ha they're they seem happy or so they seem like hopeful, you know, to see that process. That must've been amazing. Yeah. And so that was the defining moment. Cool. Maybe this is something I want to do. And also, I think, too, I'm never going to be able to do anything else because who's going to hire an ex-drug addict, alcoholic? Yes, you still had that narrative to yeah. you. Yeah. But the field of addiction seemed to have a lot of people in recovery working in the field. Right. And so, so that it was a thing that... Welcoming. Yeah. yeah and, and this arena seems to hire people that... Otherwise, in my head, it was like, nobody else is going to hire me. You know, I'm a yeah. loser. I'm whatever. So switched, went back. I had to backtrack a whole semester. So I had two and a half more years to finish. But then just going back to school, my I was blown away that my brain still worked. I was <laughs> doing really well. And, sorry, you're 30 at this point, right? 31? I uh, must have been like 31. Yeah, probably. 31. Yeah. So. And, you know, I hadn't been in school in over 10 years. Right. So I could still write papers, could still do well. I liked challenging myself, my brain. You were clear-headed at this point, so yeah. that's interesting. And I was there with like 18-year-old kids that could give two shits right. like I was when I was there, which I wish I would have had some purpose or passion you know, at the time, mm -hmm. but these guys were doing the same thing I was doing. But now right. I'm 31, and I'm like, I'm paying for this myself. I'm here. I'm getting everything out of it, and I'm trying. And still... Was able to skate by. I, I pretty much got straight A's for the rest of my schooling. Maybe a couple B's in there. And I would try and I would read all the material. But I still was just really good at not necessarily having to give 100% to, to still get 100% right. on things. You know what I mean? And you were working full time at Trader Joe's still. And right. then went into internships and things like that too. Yeah. So then at the end of my schooling, you had to pick an internship. And this lady from San Diego youth, youth services came into one of our classes and I loved her presentation and it was all about, they worked with homeless and runaway youth downtown. Mm -hmm. It was like four blocks away from where I lived. And I just, the late, I loved the lady, how she talked about everything. Again, it was another person that seemed like a real right. human to me. And then also just passionate about trying to help people. And I walked up after the presentation. I shook her hand. I said, I'm going to work for you. Oh, that's amazing. And there was a piece of me also that like being the storyteller had like romanticized this idea in my head of like, what a cool story this will be. If what, if I shake this lady's hand and say, I'm going to work for you, maybe she'll like <laughs> Oprah me and like give me a job <laughs> or something, you know. But I ended up interning for them. Couldn't work with any clients. 
I just sat in a closet and organized files until I kept begging her, um, let me work with some of the kids or do something. Right. And she said, interns at your level don't, it, we only let master's level interns work with kids, but we're going to let you. Wow. And so I, I still at this point hadn't even finished my bachelor's, uh, but I was taking a couple of little groups of kids out and doing some stuff with them. I brought some cameras out uh, cool. and we like took pictures and stuff. And then um, when I graduated, they hired me on at a program there. And I actually interviewed for her program. There was there's like 16 different programs within San Diego Youth Services. The building I was in housed two different programs. And I really wanted to work for her, Michelle. And so I interviewed for a job that they had open and um, I didn't get it. Mm. And she brought me into her office and told me and I kind of like welled up with tears because I I had kind of thought I'm destined to get this job with you but then the partners program which was in my the same building was hiring and they were sort of this ragtag group of like (laughs) people who had had like real life experience gone through shit and then you were a peer support so that the counseling cove would have the therapists that work with them and then they would give a peer support partner from the partners program to kind of supplement the work that the therapists were doing. Hmm. So I would go into people's homes and if the therapist is working with the kid on social skills, then I would pick the kid up, take them out to a public place somewhere and we'd work on social skills or do things. And I was doing a ton of home visits and going into all these things and just really getting like thrown into the mix. Um, I had to have been really hard to see some of that stuff too. It very and very, rewarding and awesome at the same time and it was cool to be working around a team of therapists and people and all that and through that those people basically told me you need to go to grad like apply to go to grad school try try to become a therapist go so i applied to one school i did all the paperwork wrote my essay in my essay even in that too i wrote about recovery being an alcoholic all of that and but i applied to san diego state masters uh, of counseling marriage and family therapy program didn't even necessarily know what a marriage and family therapist was at the time like i didn't wow. know the difference between a social worker a psychologist an mft right i just knew well these people that i work with are mfts and they're telling me that i'm an mft so <laughs> i guess i'll try and I, uh, I said, if I don't get, I'm going to apply to one school. If I don't get in, it's not meant to be. I'll figure something else out. So one school, that's kind of, I guess you could say putting it into fate's hand, but you could yeah. also say it's kind of ballsy. Like It know. also might've just been kind of lazy. Right. Like I just true. didn't want to do all the work to apply yeah. to all the other schools. Yeah. But I think it was a thing where I was like, fate will tell me the direction to go. Wow. And so I applied, got accepted went did the interview process all of the things was really nerve-wracking it's a small program to get into isn't it the the that section of yeah, that school yeah our cohort like, had 28 people right so for you to get accepted out of all of the people that might have applied that was a huge deal yeah i think there's like a few couple That's hundred amazing. few hundred or something yeah. that apply then you interview they look through the essays in the interview process you're sort of jockeying for position to try to make yourself look good um and then I got accepted and the, and being in grad school was like, I felt home for the first time because it was 
these people that wanted to sit around and have deeper discussions and talk about things. Right. And then a lot of this stuff, psych- psychology wise, therapy wise, it's stuff that I observed in everyday life. But then I'm learning about the the terms and things that go with it. You know, I'm like, oh, this is a thing that somebody's already studied, but I've just sort of been observing it. And so this is cool. I have it was the first place that I found a voice that I carried a little too far, I think, at some (laughs) point, because I finally was excited. I have an opinion. I have something to say about this. This like before I just whatever music somebody liked. Sure. That's what I like too. whatever you're into. That's what I'm into. Like, I just didn't feel like I fit anywhere. And then I finally started to feel confident in myself. And I've been doing so much work through all of Mm -hmm. these things that I kind of came into your own. That's rad. But then the pendulum like swung a little far sometimes too, where I would just be like the one talking all the time and like trying to, but I was like, if you're not going to talk, I'm going to talk and I've got shit I want to say. So it's great. During that time, the beginning I was working full-time at Trader Joe's, working that. Then the second year, you move into internships and things. And you're on first semester, we're seeing live clients in a, the, with the one-way mirror, two-way mirror, or whatever. That's scary. Where your whole class is like behind it, watching you do oh therapy God. in a little room. And it's nerve-wracking. But I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. I'm, I feel pretty good at this. I like this. I mean, I, at some point, I was working, working or in school seven days a week. And I had started my photography business on the side where I'd be hustling, doing jobs and things. So every day was pretty much filled with something. And my other friends are establishing their careers. And on the weekends, they're going out and partying and hanging out and doing things. And I'm like, I have to study and write a 20 page paper. Right. And then go to work. And yeah. But all of it was in my mind that this is going to be worth it. So this sacrifice is going to lead to something. Don't know what. And the quote that you told me during school, I think you had said that that was something that resonated with you during this time was. Are you willing to live a few years of your life like most people won't so you can live the rest of your life like most Most people people can't? can't. I love that one. I kept reading that over and over and thinking about that. Like all of this time when I feel lonely or there's no light at the end of the tunnel or me not drinking anymore when everyone else can and I'm watching Redbox movies in, <laughs> by myself every night, right. it's going to be worth it. So I worked at an elementary school for a little bit, my traineeship, my last semester. I loved that. I was doing play therapy with pre-K through fifth grade. I mean, I, I had every one of my little kids. I loved them. Um, so cute I I know some of those stories were so great like you clearly made a huge impact on some of those kids that would barely talk to other people I had a kid that had selective mutism would not speak at to any other teacher and then she came in like the first day and came in and started playing Candyland with me and just (laughs) chatting up storm so amazing and they were like bullshit they didn't believe me like well if you need to do her evaluations or whatever she talks to me so that's amazing but then i think she started talking in class her mom they both cried when i left like it was heartbreaking this little girl that just so quiet so So, they had a huge connection with you yeah and that's amazing and i loved it already started by making a huge impact in these kids lives yeah it was super fun and then i mean that was just even more telling me this is where i'm supposed to be this is what i'm supposed to be doing after that ended, that ended, I, I, I did the full time. Even after school ended, I still had a few more months to, to finish my time there at the elementary school. And that ended on a Friday. And I got hired and started work on a Monday 
with West Coast Recovery Centers. So with Ian and Sean, Ian had ran. Ian, who I had gone to treatment with 10 years or, you know, at that point, whatever, seven years or something prior, started a treatment center. And I, he saw some post, him and I, I always kept in contact, you know, and he saw some post that said that I was an MFT. And he hit me up one day. I was like, you're an MFT now? Like, we're trying to hire a male MFT like, well, yeah. Wow. So I went in for the interview with them. That was when I followed the car up from downtown San Diego. They had oh, a 222. Wow. I met with them. They, we talked about salary and whatever. And I, so I ended my internship on a Friday, started work on a Monday. No wow. time off, no break, whatever. Jumped straight in. I mean, it was extremely lucky to get placed uh, working as so a therapist fast. right away. In and this, with someone that you knew. Yeah. And it was amazing. And in... I mean, you were living in Little Italy, but in North County, one town away from Encinitas where you grew up and, right. you know, the treatment centers in Carlsbad is just a lot seemed to fall into place. And so the crazy thing, too, is throughout school and these are kind of my more spiritual beliefs of manifesting and intentions and things like that. Um, I kept saying the one thing I know is that I don't want to work for a nonprofit when I get out and not knocking nonprofits because nonprofits work with a lot of real tough populations and do a lot of amazing work. But I had already done the nonprofit thing working with West Co- or San Diego Youth Services. Right. And it's kind of grueling, like the amount of hours for the amount of money and all of these other things was really, really intense. And I just kept saying, like, I, I will not work for a nonprofit when I get out. I will work in a place that's this and that and whatever. And then it just like appeared and landed in my lap, wow. which was crazy. And I didn't even have to like try. I mean, I don't know. It's just the crazy. amount of days right after that is just unreal. And I, so the first week there when I met the staff and Hunter and John and all these other guys and I was sitting around having these conversations, Gary, I was like, I, I left work bawling because oh, I God. was just one. I couldn't believe that. I was, I had a a graduate degree, a master's degree from where I came dying in a, in a bed. You're getting choked up. (laughs) So choked up. (laughs) Uh, Just um, picturing you, you know, bawling of gratefulness after that. That's just amazing. It just totally night and day, but it was work, right? Like I did the work to get there. And I, the one thing that I developed to of, now why I understand, and I guess it should have been common sense or something, but the higher power piece of AA is essentially so you can have something to have faith in and believe that everything's going to work out all right. And if you don't have faith, then why are you going to keep going? If I believe, if my belief system says everything's fucked and nothing's going to work or whatever, why would I keep working towards a better life? I'm going to turn around and at least go back to the thing that comforts me. So I didn't find that higher power, but I always had this faith. And I, and I started to believe too, that my thoughts create my reality. And if I hold this optimistic place and believe in faith, whether it's just simply you keep working towards your goals because you believe in them, or if there is some mystical sort of alchemy that creates the things and, and sort of closes the gap and brings them into your life, whatever, either way it works out. Right. But here I am, have gone from dying in a hospital bed in treatment with a, uh, my roommate was a skinhead that had swastikas <laughs> tattooed oh on him God. and shit. And I'm like, I'm going to be, I'm destined to be an outcast and stigmatized for the rest of my life to working in a, to having a graduate degree, being 
a therapist in a program helping people manage their lives and overcome. And then I just get these experiences every day where somebody came in, they're not comfortable in their own skin. They're struggling. They don't believe in themselves either. And I get to help through my own personal experience and my professional experience go, no, it's going to be okay. We got this. And I got your back. Like we're going to get through one of my first clients that I loved on his last day of treatment after all of the stuff and the work. And he had been, struggling so hard and then he was just like content and comfortable in his own skin and we all had to write these letters and and I was writing my letter to him and I was just bawling as I was trying to read it because I was just so happy for him that he seemed and I know through other people like he's killing it right now and he's doing really good so amazing um but that first day at west coast you just felt so at home yeah, too. because like we're all talking about crazy spiritual shit that I believe yeah, like too, like-minded. and all these different things, and and this was a place too that didn't believe that treatment was a one size fits all, twelve right. step only thing. They were like, we were like trying all kinds of different stuff, and I Super I was open. running groups, and they were like, what do you want to do? Just like, and so I would just get creative and make up weird groups. I wow. mean, I had a group that I would tell people, um, think of a song that makes you feel nostalgic or emotional. And then we would all just go around and play it. And then we would process and talk about the feeling. But I just wanted That's them cool. to, to like feel feelings, you know, right. and talk about it. Without substances, too. Yeah. That riles up all kinds of stuff. Yeah. That's so amazing. It was just awesome. And to, to be there, to come full circle. And then, I mean, so that was just part of me collecting hours. Because you have to get 3,000 hours to become a licensed therapist. And all of that is still, it's just this never-ending journey that's and at, a lot of hours. At this point, also, I'm, I'm 36, 35, 36, 36, 37. And, <laughs> but at, so, I mean, 37 years old, I'm just starting. I'm not even really, I'm, I'm sort of in a career, but I'm in the intern phase that you get paid for where I was making like $35,000. Right. Not making near the money that other friends that I have that own houses and have kids and families and all these other things. And I'm just sort of basically starting over, but it was great because I was directing the show. Like I'm writing the script now I'm running it. And I still, I continue to have these goals. And then I learned through all of the treatment and everything too. I really learned about delayed gratification and you and I talk about it a lot, but it's my goal, maybe a year or two out, but it doesn't mean it's going to deter me from doing it. I'm just going to have to buy my time and continue working on things. But I always knew I wanted to be my own boss. I always knew I wanted to open my own practice. So all the time working at West Coast too, it wasn't like I was like planning on, I'm just using them and I'm going to bail. Right. I was doing good work and invested in this place. Absolutely. But it was just like, I have more that Later I want to road, accomplish yeah. for myself. And so literally I got licensed the day after I got the license, I walked into their office and said, I would love to be able to go part time so that I can start my practice on the weekends. Um, and they said, for sure, we'll let you do that. Uh, just wait till one of the ladies comes back from maternity leave. And then I kind of knew that it probably wasn't going to work out the way that I had hoped it would ideally work out. So I started saving some money. And then when she two and a half months later, three months later, she came back and they said, you know, a lot of our clients are here five days a week. We can't necessarily have primary therapists that are only here three days a week. So we don't want part time. Um, and at this point, through all of this, too, I had 
worked into a confidence of myself as a therapist and knew my self-worth and all of that. And I just said, I have to take this leap. And it's a bummer that you guys kind of told me led you you on a little bit right and not to say it's a to me i looked at it too as it's a business move you have a business to run you need therapists here five days a week i have goals and plans for my life and they don't involve me staying on doing something that i don't feel is my path anymore right so i i just jumped blindly i had found a space a couple days a week and i just started and it i thought like at first it was going to be really easy. I was getting all kinds of referrals and then it dried up and there was periods of time where I had like $50 in the bank and not a single client on the books, not knowing where money was going to come from. But like at that point, the faith and all of that, you know, the hot, whatever I had just learned to manage the anxiety, believe, don't run away, right? This is the challenge that the universe is presenting you with right now. It's going to test you. It's not going to be easy. Right. So just keep pushing through and keep moving forward. And thankfully at that point too, you were sort of in a stabler place in your career and you were able to make a little more money. So at times when I didn't have any money, you were be able to help me out. Like I was helping you when you During were in school. school. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember the day you came home and you said, so I left my job. I think you worded it slightly different than that, but you're like, so I left and I think I looked at you and I said, okay, all right, great. What are we going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? Let's do it. And it was just support from then on, um, of, I mean, not to say, you know, oh, I was so supportive. But, no, but you never like, even like question. No, I didn't even. I get like fearful eye. of that. You come home right. and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. And I'm like, no. oh, God, you have to. And then I'm like, I quit my job. And you're like, like cool. Rad, what are you going to do? Yeah. How are we going to do this? Like, <laughs> yeah. let's fucking party on, man. Mm-hmm. Also, the first time that you, I think, had like two weeks, three weeks, maybe where you were able to take a break because thank goodness you had saved up and we had been doing, you know, I'd been doing OK. Um, so like for how many years, like seven, eight, nine years, you were doing the seven days a week and then straight into the treatment program, five days a week, several hours, like five to seven days, I mean, five to seven years of just like constant and are moving. And I mean, there was so much. So like you finally had a break. I was like, yeah, take that break, man. And then I was seeing some clients and still able to pay the bills, but it wasn't, again, it's another thing where it's like. Just because, yeah, and just because everybody else is living their life one way doesn't mean that just because I made $25,000 one year or what, you know, that I'm a failure or that I'm not doing it right or I'm carving my own path right now. And even through this, still, you know, uh, not to knock my parents either, but the the fear of me, you know, maybe venting to them, I don't have any clients, I don't have any money, and uh, they would always say, Go get a job at Kaiser. Go get a job here. Go get a job yeah, this. Steady. And even when I would get, be getting offered jobs from people, I mean, I got a lot of you different jobs. You were very sought after. You still are to this day. You get calls all the time, which is a huge compliment, but from like very amazing treatment centers and different programs, like it always amazes me how often you are so sought after. Well, but it wasn't ever. It right. just never felt right. Yeah, and maybe there's a part of me too that has some fear of moving into more responsibility or something. But at the same time, I kept going like, how am I going to create this dream that I have for myself of creating this practice and growing this practice if I 
now all of a sudden go dedicate a bunch of my time and energy to somebody else's business and somebody else's dream. Yeah. And so what if I'm not making a lot of money? So what if I don't have enough money to put a ring on your finger yet or all of these other things that like other people are doing or we're supposed to be supposed to be quote doing. I just like, okay, stay the course. All of this is a test. I wholeheartedly believe that the people that don't achieve their dreams and there's a lot of different reasons we could get into. Right. But one of them to me is just self-doubt creeps in fear creeps in and you go, I got to run the other way instead of believing and having faith that the universe is going to take care of you and continuing to move forward and knowing it's going to be hard. You know, I mean, so here we are, right? I'm in my third year of my practice for two and a half years, I've been going two days a week. I do my photo business and stuff on the side, but I was literally working in an office two days a week, answering emails and other things yeah. every other day of the week and working on blogs and things and whatever. But like get up when I want, go to the gym, hang out. I go see my client. I mean, I take my job very seriously, but I've also created the life that I've always sort of dreamed of, of like, I don't have to work a nine to five, 40 hour a week thing, make work my entire life. Answer to somebody else. Right. Right. Which I'm not a good team player. No, (laughs) I just have a lot of opinions and ideas and I tend to think I'm right. And you know that. Uh, Your fiance isn't that different. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes it's validated in the moves I keep making and when I make them and all of that end up working out really well for me. So the moral of all of this too is the last 10 years of my life. So here we are. February will be 10 years in recovery, 10 years without a sip of alcohol, nothing but good things have happened. And I've had to work my fucking ass off for these things, but also it's come out of a choice that I made that I sustained and stayed to that. I put in the work personally, emotionally, all of this other stuff. I'm not saying everybody has to go to school and go on to higher education and get go to grad school and all of that. But you have to put, you have to have goals, set things and then keep moving towards them. But not drinking and not consuming substances and all that for all that time was the the number one thing that I think aided me in all of this. And it just kept me focused. And I mean, it's crazy. I, I can't wait to see what the next five, 10 years turns into. We're always right. working on projects and continuing to try to do things. And part of this, even starting this podcast for me is just to push myself into another area of like discomfort and then to have a project to work on. Yeah. Cause I don't like just sitting around feeling content and. Like, and that's something I always have admired about you and still do is like you touched on it a little bit, but like you said, you know, you were in your office just two days a week and now you're three days a week, which still is like amazing, you know, time, like having free time and stuff. But to give you a little more credit, you, you definitely are not doing nothing on those other days. Like you're always hustling, doing some kind of side project, creating something like I love our moments where we get into like thinking about new ideas for the future and like different side projects we can do together or apart. And like just having that constant like eagerness to grow, it's so admirable. And like, I can't personally wait to see what you do, what we do in the next 10 years too. And like, I just want to be the first to say congratulations. Well, thank you, baby. You too. Likewise. Thanks. 
it's amazing to watch everything that you're doing too. And the podcast shortly after this podcast will probably be <laughs> all about that because we've already recorded those ones. Yep. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. A lot of people that I sit with, a lot of people I see have come to some adversity in their life, but then they don't believe that their life is going to go anywhere and it's not going to happen fast. But if you have defined goals and you know what you want, go after it. Don't be afraid to change. Don't get stuck in the same thing that you're miserable in. If you're miserable, change. You can change at any time. And you said this at the end of the one that we recorded too, right? Like, yeah. Go after what you want. You have the ability to create the life that you want. You just have to put in the work for it. And yeah, that work, believe it. Right. So you have to have the faith. You have to have the belief. Because if you don't have any of that, what the fuck are you working for? Right. You're, you're going to give up immediately. Right. There's no pe purpose, passion. Yeah. There's nothing behind it because you don't even believe. Your belief system says you're going to fail anyways. Why are you trying this? Yeah. Which is part of the work to work through, right? Like, I guess I'll end it on this. And this is how I envision my life in a weird metaphysical way or something. Like, I always picture this and I've shared this with you. So there's these doors and they're floating out in space and time. And there's a few that you can see. There's one, there's, you know, maybe there's one or two that are like right in front of you. Maybe there's one that your hand is on, you're on the doorknob. And then off in the distance, there's some other doors. You don't know what's behind any of these doors, but they're just floating out there. Your job is to walk through the door. All of our doors are different. All of our path and purpose is different, but the job is just to be able to walk through the door and each door is sort of, metaphor for opportunity right so on the other side of the door there's a new opportunity there's a new achievement there's something the problem is to walk through the doors you have to be able to believe in yourself you have to have confidence you have to challenge fears and all of these other things right and so you have to at least be able to just do the work first and foremost to walk through the door and then you walk through that one and a bunch of new other doors appear. Hmm. And then you you keep doing the work that's going to allow you to be able to get to those doors and move through those doors. And then there's doors that don't even exist yet that are just out that. way out there. But every time you walk through a new door and you're able, like, it's not like this path for me has just been super easy. No. And I don't just immediately like, I'm going to challenge my fear and run toward it. I procrastinate right. a lot on things that are hard for me. This podcast, I right. don't know how to create an intro and do things. So I've just been putting it off my website, starting the bit. There's a lot of things that are hard, but once you realize it's just self doubt and fear, then you kind of push through. And every time that I've pushed through fear and walked through one of those doors on the other side of it, there's all kinds of new opportunity. But if you're just sitting back in your comfort zone, never even trying to walk through any doors and just expecting that life is just going to come along and hand you this magical life that you've always wanted. It ain't happening. Yeah. I've, like I've waited for that one. That doesn't happen. Yeah. I used to work at the restaurant and think that somebody wouldn't come in one day and like my personality and go, Hey, here's a $150,000 <laughs> totally. job. And it never happened. And now after putting in all the work, I'm definitely not making anywhere near $150,000, right. but I have freedom. I have a fiance. I have a place that I love. We just got a new car. We're, I mean, we're, we're building a life together we're happy. and yeah, yeah, extremely. And we're creating it Yep. how we want to create it. Everybody can do that. Yeah. You just have to believe and put in the work. I love that. And not give up. Super inspiring. I love everything you said.
I think that the goal for this year is to double the practice again. It's du- it doubled from the first year to last year to this year. So hopefully that will happen. Hopefully I'll continue connecting with people. I primarily, I work with couples, but I primarily work with substance use uh, people in recovery some way, shape or form. Yeah. And I'm obviously if they have like a severe problem, they need to go to treatment and other things first. But I'm also not a one size fits all, just like my own recovery and how I am now. You know, I encourage people to go to meetings, but I can't really say go to meetings when I haven't been to a meeting in nine years. I can say it really helped me and it would help you, but we can also look at some other things and I sort of go in a roundabout way to let's work on your anxiety, your your self-esteem, your right. relationships. And hopefully when some of those things start to get better, you might not have as much desire to escape and avoid your life in substances. You I know? think that's amazing. Um, so har- I'm harm redu- I practice harm reduction with clients. I don't ask my clients. I really pride myself in this too. I try to have a lot of integrity in what I do. And I really try not to ask my clients to do anything that I wouldn't be willing to do myself That's or huge. that I haven't done myself. Yeah. And I'm not perfect by any means, you know, but I really, I'm doing the work too. Right. Still. And you've been through a lot of it. Yeah. Okay. So I think that yeah. covers a lot of it. Life That's is amazing. good. I think here's another thing. 10 years later, drinking is sort of irrelevant to me. Every once in a while, I think about it'd be nice to have a drink. Um, I'm actually a person that believes that people can recover from substance use disorders, which is not a common. I was just going to say that is not common. But I don't talk about it that often with people, especially in early recovery. It's not something that I say, yeah, you probably could go back to you. So you you probably shouldn't go back to using heroin (laughs) or cocaine or a bunch of other stuff, popping pills. Drinking is a different story for people because it's everywhere. And so that's like kind of a harder thing for people to do. I don't know the time frame. I don't know what it is, but I do think that people can change their relationships to any type of addiction that they have, Mm. whether it's sex, gambling, food, whatever you can, you can do the work to change the relationship. And by that, I mean, Mm. when I didn't like the way I felt and I felt shitty and uncomfortable all the time, I had this thing to make me feel better. It made me feel the way I want to feel. It wasn't like I was just feeling good all the time, partying all the time. I felt bad all the time. Right. And this thing was the only thing I knew that helped me feel like I want to feel. People do that with people. They do that in relationships. Mm. I don't know how to validate myself or feel good about myself, but when you're around and I get a little morsel of love from right. you, I feel good. And that creates a codependent, imbalanced relationship where, and I guess... Code of, I don't really like the word codependency, but it creates imbalance in a relationship where I need you. And when you're not around, I'm falling apart. Right. I People have it with food. People have it with shopping. People have whatever, right? This thing fills a void. It makes me feel the way I want to feel. Mm. You can do the work to become more whole as a human being. Right. And then I truly believe that you don't, you won't go back to those things as an escape and as an avoidance anymore Mm. that you used to, but you have to only, you know, I'm not, I'm not by any means suggesting to people go out and test this. Right. Of course. I, so back to me, 10 years later, a person who does believe this has also come to the realization that I don't fucking need alcohol in my life. Right. I don't want it. I'm whole. I feel good. I've done everything that I need. I thought I needed alcohol previously to do. I've, 
partied on New Year's Eve and danced on tables dead ass sober. I've gone on dates. I've done everything. Yeah. I purposely put myself in those scenarios so that I could push out those comfort zones so that I wouldn't have to rely on this thing. And I've created a life that has purpose and passion and I've built things that I don't want to fucking throw away. Right. And it's a, it has the potential to be a slippery slope. You know, I see all the time people put boundaries for themselves and they're like, I'll drink two drinks a week or I'll drink. And then eventually it's like, well, I could have three. I don't know what the big difference between two and three and, and whatever, you know, it's just, it's not a space that I don't even want to put in my brain. Why do I want to restrict myself or have to do that when I really, truly don't need this substance? So the point of me saying all of that too is shit gets better. Perceptions change. The way you feel about drugs, your life, whatever, alcohol changes as you go down the road, but you really, really sincerely need a period of abstinence. I just don't see it work with people where they're still trying to moderate here and there for a while. Right. The abstinence allows you the time to feel really uncomfortable. And in the space of feeling really uncomfortable, you learn how to be comfortable. Mm. But you can't do that when you're still escaping into a substance here and there or when people stop using all things but then they say that they're going to start smoking weed you're still using it as an escape there's nothing wrong with weed if you smoke every once in a while or whatever right but are you using it as an escape or right you using it to make you feel the way you want to feel or are you just like smoking some pot and eating something and laughing every once in a while and you know so on that little rambling note, the the more I think that's a great addition, though. Yeah, I just wanted to add that piece too, though, to say like, it gets better. Life will get better. I've never seen anybody stay in recovery and stay away from substances that their life did not get better. Oh, that's such a good point. I saw people in AA that would be like ten years sober, and they'd come in and they'd just be venting about how shitty their life is still, and everything's going wrong and all of these things. And yeah, things go wrong in all of our lives, but. Have you learned how to handle it? Have you learned how to manage the stress? Are you still in victim mentality? Mm. Are you still in old behaviors? Oh, wow. Just not with the substance? Like, are you still doing shitty things? Are you being manipulative or lying or, right? You haven't, you haven't resolved the problems. And then people come back and they're like, I was sober 10 years and I smoked a joint and then I went straight into full-blown heroin. And I'm like, I really truly believe the only reason for that is that you didn't resolve a lot of the other things. And mm-hmm. so when you presented with a escape again, you just went full bore into escape Makes again. Sense. If you have a life that you like, you're not going to try to escape from it. If you feel comfortable in your own skin and you like yourself, you're not going to try to escape from it. But on day 30 of coming out of a bender of 10 years of substance use, you're not going to magically love yourself again. No, no. Like you have to go do the work. And I mean, that, I wrote it in a journal a long time ago. I have all my journals in the garage and I'll leave it at this. I wrote down, it seems like the harder I work, the easier life gets. Oh, I love that. And like, I really wholeheartedly believe, like put in the work, do everything that you can in any, it doesn't even have to be a substance use. Like push yourself out of your comfort zone to try to go after what you want and then you'll create the life that you want. I love that. That you deserve. That's a great little saying and seems like a great little realization you came to in that journal there's another guy that it's a different quote same thing if you do what is easy life will be hard if you do what is hard life will be easy 
That all so being true. said, hopefully this podcast, this podcast in general, not just this one that we just recorded, will be inspiring, bring about hope. I hope that I get a bunch of cool stories and people to share. I'm really excited about connecting with people and listening. I thank you for sitting here and sort of interviewing me, allowing me to just talk at you for (laughs) almost two hours. I'm happy to thank you for having me be a part of it. And I have been with you going on five years and I do not get sick of hearing your amazing story. And I can't wait to hear all the rest of the amazing stories that are going to come from this. podcast. Yeah. It's going to be exciting to hear all the other people that, and you're going to have to hear me talk about myself for the rest of our days together because <laughs> it's just entertaining for me, you know? 